if you've like find yourself quitting a lot, you have to start asking yourself, well, why am I quitting? And, and that's where the mindfulness comes in. Like, why am I quitting and being honest with yourself? Like <laughs> I had Matt Fitzgerald, who's a, a running, like a endurance author on my podcast. And he was talking about how he would like go hide in the woods in high school, <laughs> like during his races. Um, but like some people quit because they're like, they're afraid of what other people are going to think of their results. Or like my first few years as a pro racer, like I didn't quit, but I, I wasn't good. And I cried through my races because I was so worried that people were going to think I sucked. And I was so upset by that. So like, are you, are you quitting because you're worried about what other people think? And then you ask, well, why do I worry about what other people think? And then like getting to know yourself better to the point where you can't really ask why anymore. And your only choice is to keep going. And then to just keep doing that over and over and realizing that that moment when you want to quit is normal. Like everybody wants to quit. Welcome to the common threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. So welcome to the show. We're here with uh, Sonia Looney, pro mountain biker, podcast extraordinaire, plant-based athlete and lifestyle and um, mindset coach um, and expert. And got a, a pretty serious resume, um, both as an athlete and, and outside as an entrepreneur, 2015 world champion for 24 hour racing. Um, the number of podiums you've had and the number of countries is not many people have been to that many of countries and you've been on the podium on your bike. Um, I was looking at Nepal, Brazil, Colombia, Poland, <laughs> Mongolia, uh, pretty <laughs> You've definitely been um, been around and seen some amazing things, I'm sure. <laughs> so welcome to the show. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you've listened to my past shows, but I always start with the hardest question, um, which is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> oh, it's, it's what I have for breakfast every morning, um, except for on the weekends. I like my steel-cut oats with hemp hearts, uh, a couple of tablespoons of ground flax, berries, um, sometimes some walnuts, sometimes some pumpkin seeds, and a little bit of maple syrup. There we go. How does and that... my americano? And your americano? <laughs> How many? One or two? Well, it depends. I'm pregnant right now, so I'm only allowed one coffee per day, which is kind of a sad thing. But sometimes I have two. <laughs> All right. And how? Not it... when I'm not now. <laughs> <laughs> and how's your breakfast changed the morning of uh, of a big race? Uh, it gets a little less fibrous, I would say. So normally it's pretty simple. And because of the countries you mentioned, I try and keep my breakfast really simple. So it'll be two pieces of bread and just with almond butter and some jam and that's it. Awesome. So getting started just on your path to your career in mountain biking, just walk us through like how that happened. You know, where did you start? You know, when did you, when did you even get started on a bike? Yeah, it's kind of a circuitous path, but I think with endurance athletes, a lot of us didn't start in childhood. I think that's changing now, especially mountain biking with the Nike leagues and things like that, which are like the high school and middle school leagues. But I didn't even know that cycling was a sport growing up. Um, I learned to ride a bike as a kid and then that was kind of it. And I played soccer and I played tennis and 
I played tennis in high school and my dream was to be a pro tennis player. And I was a huge Pete Sampras fan. And like, I had my VHS and I'd record tennis matches and watch them, but it didn't really work out because, well, I started running my senior year of high school and I wanted to run a marathon and I didn't know how to train properly. So I ended up getting a stress fracture because I was still running, going to tennis and going to the gym. And so I started going to spin class at the gym and using the elliptical to try and recover from the stress fracture and spin class at the gym led to like in college, some guys at my work saying, Hey, do you want to go mountain biking? And I had never been mountain biking before. So I said, yeah, like that sounds good. So I went mountain biking and then they said, you should sign up for a race. There's a, a state championship in two weeks. And I said, well, I'm, I'm a runner. I don't really. I don't really know much about this mountain bike thing. And they're like, you're just scared, which is basically, you know, an invitation for me to prove them wrong. And they did that on purpose. So I said, Oh, that's it. I'm doing it. So two weeks later, I signed up for a mountain bike race and I had no idea where that path would take me. And I think that the important thing about this story is that there's lots of things that we hear we should try or that we have the opportunity to try and we don't do it. And you just never know how your life will twist and turn if you just try something new. And if I'd never tried mountain biking, there's no way that I would have had traveled the, the world and ha met the people I've met and had my life go in the direction it has. And I've been racing bikes since 2003. So it's been a long time. <laughs> Talk about that journey from that first race to becoming a pro and what that looked like in between. So the interesting thing again about endurance sports, and I'm sure many of the listeners understand is it's actually not as hard to become a pro endurance athlete as it would be to like in the NBA or something, right. because you, you just go to these races around the country and you ac accumulate points so that you can upgrade based on the governing body of your sport. So I actually was able to become a quote professional card holder in a few years um, just from racing around and my, probably my life as an athlete, it wasn't an overnight success. And most professional endurance athletes have to work. Like it's just normal. And, um, it's not as glamorous as, as people would think, but the amazing thing about endurance athletes is we have passion for what we do because we have to make it work with everything going on and we have to be dedicated to the sport. So I was still in grad school while I was a new professional. So I was taking, I was doing my master's in electrical engineering, taking, you know, full credit load and working two jobs and training and racing. So it was, it was tough, but I learned time management and I learned work ethic and that's really served me well now. And I was doing cross country racing, which is the shorter distance racing. And that's what the, the most of the country was set up to do with the national series and everything like that but I never really achieved a high level of success. I was always kind of a mid pack cross country racer and I kind of started plateauing and I was working for a startup solar engineering company done with my masters thinking, gosh, like, what do I want to do now? Because I'm not progressing anymore and I'm not really having that much fun to be honest. And then someone suggested I try endurance racing. So I thought, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll give that a try. And so I did a 50 miler and then a hundred miler and then stage racing, which are multi-day races and realized, this is like, I was actually really good at it. And I think part of it is because a lot of it is, is mental and it doesn't require like the high end, um, that like a shorter race would. And I just fell in love with it. So I, that was in 2010. And so I've been endurance racing for, I guess we just hit 2020. So nine years and going on 10. All right. One thing that's always impressive to me about the long, whether it's ultra runners or ultra distance on the bike is 
the amount of time you need to put in on your bike. So like getting through a race when you've planned for that and the mindset to get you through something that's the achievable goal, like that in its own right is impressive to me, but it's the, the hours that you spend training just to get to the starting line where, you know, I have a hard time finishing my hour long indoor ride in the winter. Um, and the number of hours that you must, the mindset to train, it's just something where you deeply love that part of the sport or, you know, how do you approach that, that piece? Well, the reason why I love endurance racing so much is simply because I just love to ride my bike and I probably am a little bit unconventional with the way that I train. Um, I do my structured training in the winter on the trainer because I have to ride indoors where I live. And then summer is for going out and having fun on my bike and having fun on my bike means exclusively mountain biking. And it means if I feel like going hard, I'll go hard. And if there's something I need to work on, I'll work on it. But I, I kind of take away the, the hard structure in the summer and just try and like stay in love with my bike. And that's how I've been able to race for so long. I do think that people think that you need to train a lot more than you actually need to train certainly. And maybe it's because I don't have experience as an ultra runner and I'm actually quite interested in ultra running. I think you do need to put in, um, especially initially that time because your body needs to adapt to that type of physical, I don't want to call it a beating, but yeah, <laughs> that type of stress, same with the bike. So I think because I've spent so many years riding my bike, it's all accumulated. I honestly spend like a big training week for me is a 15 hour week, uh, mm. a moderate week, a normal week is probably 10 to 12. And there are weeks, like, especially when I've been trying to get all my other projects going up and running, like there's a year where I trained eight hours a week. So as long as you're, you know, making good quality with that time, I feel like with endurance racing, you can get away with a little bit because the, the high end work, you have to be incredibly rested for, you have to have a, a really strong plan for that. Whereas, um, and, and I mean, this might just be me, but I can go really hard for a long time, like right below my threshold. And I feel like the training for that is almost easier. Yeah. So another big transition. So, you know, your, your move into cycling, and I want to get more into that later and kind of what you've learned over the years, but also your transition to becoming plant-based both as an athlete and as a person and kind of what led to that and what you've learned. I mean, it, right now it's such a hot topic of conversation, but I think I've heard you say, you know, you, you've made that shift, um, six or seven years ago. And, and for people out there who care a lot about their health and are, you know, analyzing the different types of paths they could go on, um, talk a little bit about, what you've learned and how you've done it, um, and kind of the science that has led you to it from all the people you've interviewed. Yeah. So I changed my diet, um, in 2013 or maybe I started kind of shifting a bit in 2012 and it was actually, I met a guy at a bike race called BC bike race, who is actually now my husband. <laughs> and I was eating dinner with him at the race. And I noticed that he was eating these like huge plates of beans and grains and vegetables. And I, I asked him like what he was eating because that's not how I ate. And he told me that he ate a vegan diet. And my initial impression was, Oh no, like a vegan, like, Oh gosh, because I'd had really negative experiences in, in that time period with, with people who were vegan. So I wasn't even necessarily open to hearing about it, but he said to me like, this is just, and the way that he communicated, I think was really important. He just said, this is the way I eat because 
this is the best way that I can eat to have longevity and health in my life. And here's a documentary I watched called Forks Over Knives. If you want to watch it, you, you can check it out. You can do your own research. Um, it's up to you. And then he left it at that. And I'm a kind of a curious person. So I eventually watched the documentary and I thought, wow, I can prevent cancer or reverse types of cancer. I can prevent heart disease. Like I thought blood, I thought high blood pressure was just genetic in my family. I thought that cancer was just bad luck. And then I learned more and more like, oh, well you can actually reverse type two diabetes and you can like prevent Parkinson's disease and just all these different things that I thought just were run of the mill, bad luck. And having that kind of control was just amazing that you can like with lifestyle, you can do that. So I thought, okay, well, if this is true, I need to start making changes. So I started changing my diet and I, I did it in the middle of my race season. And I was worried about changing my diet that I would get slower, that I wouldn't get enough protein or calories or recovery. And I didn't really know of anybody else except for my now husband, Matt, who was doing that. And he wasn't a pro athlete. So I thought, well, I, I hope I don't screw myself over here because I, I am an endurance athlete, but I have to give this a try. And, um, something weird happened. I got faster <laughs> and I wasn't expecting that to happen. I was just doing it because I, I, I thought this is the healthy way to eat. And I got faster because whenever you eat plant-based, it's like the best anti-inflammatory diet you can eat. Um, you start reversing heart disease, which for many people start as children, like school. And actually lately I've been doing quite a bit of research on the importance of, uh, plant-based nutrition for kids. So you actually have better blood flow, better oxygen flow, better uh, elasticity in your um, veins and arteries. Like there's just, your body is a system. It's, it's not like one thing. If you treat your body right, everything gets better. And I started going from, you know, trying to get on the podium at races and sometimes getting on the podium to winning a lot of the races and like a seven day race, like recovery is a part of the race, like being able to recover and being able to take on a bigger workload for all the projects that I enjoy doing. So it really was an awesome thing that I wasn't expecting. I just thought, oh, I'm just going to prevent disease. And I actually didn't really talk about it for about four years because I didn't want people to feel alienated. I didn't want people to think I was judging them. But then I thought to myself, like, I really believe in this. And this has changed my life in a really dramatic way. And everything I've read about like people who are actually ill or people that won't even know that they're sick until it's too late. Like it's really important to talk about this. So I started talking about it and it's been super rewarding and getting the type of feedback from people like that I've gotten almost every day that their lives are better because they've either changed their diet completely or just added in more plant-based foods. It's just, it's so powerful. It's, it's, I'm really, really thankful that I uh, was exposed to that. So. But I have so many questions just about, you've talked a lot in past podcasts and, um, just about habit change. And, you know, there, a big part for many people is just the shifting of a major habit. You've grown up eating one way. You've been told one set of things like how, whether how you've done it or how you've seen people do it. And this doesn't, have, I'm not even just referring to shifting the plant-based, but like making that sort of a, of a shift, you know, did you go kind of cold Turkey and a hundred percent all in, or did you, you know, is it something where it's, you started to focus more on plants and then over time it just naturally happened. I think it for habit change, it's a personality thing and also a situational thing. So because of my being an athlete, I was afraid to make 
uh, an immediate switch. So my, my switch is over the course of a couple of months. And I said to myself, I'm going to eat, you know, 80% plant-based. I'm going to eat X meals a day plant-based. And then if I want the other stuff that I was eating, mainly I was eating just like, I wasn't eating terrible, but I was eating like fish as, and some cheese. So if I still want that, or I still want, you know, milk in my cappuccino, I can have it. And over time, I just phased it out over a couple of months. And then I just didn't want it anymore. And there was the odd time where I would give it a try. And it was weird. It actually tasted disgusting to me because your palate changes for people. I think that like in my husband, when he changed his diet, he was, he's all or none. Like he threw everything out. And the next day he was hundred percent plant-based and never went back. So I, I think it just depends on the personality type for me. Um, telling me I could never have something ever again and throwing it away, that makes me not want to make a change. It's too extreme. So I think you have to come at it from what works best for you. And for some people, a hundred percent just will never work or just in their mind won't ever work for them. So just commit to something that works for you. But with habit change in general, consistency is, is the number one, most important thing, whether it be with diet training, um, a meditation practice, like writing, just, just commit to doing something every day and show up for it every day. And then you start building integrity with yourself and trust with yourself. And then you know that, well, I, I know that I can show up and do this. And then you start thinking, well, what more can I do? Or if you commit to showing up for like one meal or five minutes or whatever it is, you end up wanting to do more because it feels good. And you like to be like doing that thing for yourself that you wanted to do and knowing that you're able to do it. And I mean, plant-based, uh, you know, similar to all diets or food, like you can still end up in the junk food aisle of the store, <laughs> yeah. right? So talk about, you know, how you think about nutrition overall. And I've read some that like anti-inflammatory benefits, those really stand out to me as something that like as a person and as an athlete um, kind of draw me in beyond other other areas. But how do you kind of build that balanced diet for someone who is looking to either cut out meat or cut out some meat? Um, what are the steps that you take or go to foods or how you build your meals? I think the first thing, so whole foods plant-based means you're not eating processed foods or you're eliminating as many processed foods as you can. And just in general, cutting out processed foods for people, even if they're still eating meat and dairy is going to be better for them. Processed foods are just chemicals and they're, it's poison. <laughs> so whenever I'm building my plate every day, I say, okay, um, number one, you have to be committed to your health and committed to spending maybe a little bit more time in the kitchen preparing food. Cause it's really fast to like, I don't know, cook a piece of meat and then have a vegetable or something. Um, but it doesn't have to be complicated. So have a whole grain of some kind, like, and preferably if you can like hold grains where the shell has come off, those are going to have less nutritional value, but just do the best you can. So like barley or rice, like wild or brown rice or quinoa, or, um, yeah, I mean, just like whatever you like, there's so many different grains. Kamut berries are a fun grain, pick a grain pick uh, a protein source of some kind. So like I, I choose like a bean, a legume. There's a billion different types of beans. Tofu and tempeh are also um, bean sources, although they don't have the pro or the, they don't have the fiber that a bean would have. Pick some beans. Beans are linked to longevity all around the world. Like it's probably one of the best things you can add into your diet. Add in some vegetables that you like and add some nuts and seeds to the mix and you're good to go. Like have something like that have those elements in every meal 
And it makes it pretty simple because you just have to check those things off every time. And it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be complicated sauces that you can make. I mean, just take avocado, basil, lemon juice, and garlic and blend it up. Like that's pretty delicious. Um, <laughs> or you can make something with tahini. So yeah. And I mean, you can still have like treats. Like I still eat pizza, but I'll make the dough myself. And then I don't put cheese on it. And I just like have have a good pizza sauce and a bunch of different vegetables that I like. And I eat that. Um, or I get like a smoked tofu and I'll put it on there or you can still make your own veggie burgers. Like I have, I have my own cookbook and one of my favorite veggie burgers is like oats and beans and cilantro and, um, like garlic and it's it, and a bunch of spices and it's super good. And as an athlete, like what are the things you hear most often that hold people back, whether, you know, they could be a, a misperception or not, um, on making the shift, you know, like getting enough protein is that, you know, what do you do for recovery? Yeah. I think people are still, um, you know, the, the protein thing is still this mystifying thing, but there's, there's a lot of protein in grains and beans. And like, I think most people don't, even know how much protein they're getting regularly, like on their standard American diet. <laughs> but whenever you start talking about a diet change and everybody's suddenly worried about protein, as long as you're eating enough calories and you're eating whole foods, you don't have to think about protein. You don't have to worry about protein. Um, it's never something I've worried about. It's never something like even iron. I've never been deficient in iron. I, I haven't had any deficiencies since I've changed my diet. And in fact, many people that eat um, meat and dairy are deficient in a lot of different things. Yeah. So that was going to be one of my questions on whether or not you as an athlete, uh, in general, and also as a pregnant athlete, if you've needed to supplement anything, um, outside of what you can get through your, through your foods. Yeah. I mean, I, I take a multivitamin I, I, my whole life. I've always just taken a multivitamin. One thing that I've been reading a lot more about, and I would recommend checking out, uh, Dr. Joel Furman's work specifically, but DHA from an algae source has a lot of positive health benefits and you can get these omega threes in, um, plant-based diets from like nuts and, and flax and, and things like that. But having a lot more DHA is, is really important for brain health. So, and it's also important for like breastfeeding and, um, and things like that. So just generally having a DHA supplement from an algae source, not a fish source. And, you know, most vegans want to supplement with B12 and animals don't come with B12. Like they're the reason why animals have B12 is because it's in the, they're getting the supplement and then you're eating it through them. So, uh, yeah, if I think about what supplements I I'm taking, I take a DHA, maybe I take a B12 once a week. I've never been deficient in B12 and I take a multivitamin and, um, that's pretty much it for the people who are the the true like science and research nerds out there. Um, what have you read or people you've talked to who have, you know, really set the foundation for the scientific understanding of plant-based? Yeah. I would recommend like if people are looking for like a good source, nutritionfacts.org and Dr. Michael Greger, he, he has all these awesome videos. And at the bottom of the videos, he has all the studies that he cites. So if you're like, watching the videos and you're like, eh, whatever, it seems like cherry picking, or this doesn't seem right. Like you can actually read the actual studies yourself. And also, um, if you want to get like, really get geeky learning who funded the studies and then even like lobby groups and things like that, you'll see names that don't look suspicious. But if you learn more about the lobby group, you'll find out that it's like 
the meat or the dairy industry with just like a fancy name that doesn't sound like the meat or the dairy industry. Yeah. I think it's the hardest part for people is knowing what to believe because there's so much contradicting information out there. But if you look at also just like epidemiological studies, um, you know, where people are living the longest, what their habits are, what diets people are actually having success, reversing their diseases, um, that combined with the research that you can read is, um, a really powerful thing that you can do. And now, I mean, it's awesome. If you want to change your diet now, there's so many people, so many, <laughs> so many like doctors and researchers and dietitians. If you buy one book by becoming vegan by Brenda Davis, um, she came on my podcast as like episode two and she became a really good friend, but she is basically the world's leading dietitian in plant-based nutrition. And her book is like the encyclopedia with all the studies, with all the information you could possibly wonder. Um, I use that book all the time when people email me questions and I don't know the answer off the top of my head. I reference her book. So becoming vegan by Brenda Davis. And you have a Facebook group on this as well, right? Yeah. It's called plant power tribe with Sonia Looney and you don't have to be plant-based to join. It's just adding in more plant-based foods. And I just launched, um, plantpowertribe.com where I'm still working on getting it, you know, launching a new website is a, a big ordeal. <laughs> People want, you know, more information. So I'm trying to just make this website so people can find all the resources that they need or they want frequently asked questions section. So they can feel more confident when they're making the change. And then the, the Facebook group is like a compliment to that where, you know, maybe you're making a change in your life with anything like tribe is important and, pe and people that you spend your time with are important and, and feeling supported in your decisions is important. So having people around you, even if it's online in a community where you can ask questions or say, Hey, like I changed my diet, but I don't feel good. Like, what do you think's happening? Or um, like one guy's like, I'm looking for new breakfast ideas, you know, just things like that, where you can bounce ideas off of people. I, I think it's really powerful to surround yourself with people doing the same things as you. Yeah, that's great. Um, what about your nutrition on your rides? What, what's your go-to there? I mean, that's a common asked question. There's so many products out there that you, or you can buy at the store. So yeah, for me, I mean, I've, I've been using Goo Energy Labs sport nutrition for a really long time, and that's what has always worked for me. So, you know, between the chews and the gels and um, the Roctane drink mix, and then I'll bring like fig bars or I'll bring, like sometimes I do my own like vegan baking if I'm doing like longer rides, like cookies or, or date bars or, you know, whatever, um, granola, like granola bars, but like just get stuff that you're going to like and that you're going to eat. Um, on race day, I've thought about like using dates, but there's too much fiber in dates if you just eat dates. <laughs> so it's hard to digest. Um, for me on race day, like I keep my nutrition really simple and my body, uh, for whatever reason, I I'm a sugar burner. So I'll just do like a hundred mile race, mostly on gels and water and, um, drink mix. So it's pretty, a pretty simple, um, nutrition plan. That's great. What did I miss on plant-based? So this is like the, you know, there's, I haven't watched it yet. It is on my list. I was going to try to do it last night, but game changers. And it seems like it's at the same moment for me that meditation was a few years ago where it was something that people heard a lot. The benefits were clear. Um, and then it took people actually just starting to do it, which was made much more simple through apps like Headspace that made it accessible to everyone. Um, feels like we're at that same sort of point, but, um, I don't know. What did I miss that you, that gets asked in your groups 
that uh, that people are either excited about or struggling with, like that helps people get over that hump? I think generally it's when people initially change their diet, they don't eat enough calories because they think, oh, I'm just going to eat three meals a day or I have to keep my portion sizes smaller. But if you're eating whole foods, plant-based, just eat as much as you want. Anytime you're hungry, eat like eat more at mealtime. I think that's the biggest issue that people have when they change their diet. They don't feel good is they're just not eating enough calories. So yeah, like making sure that you're doing that. And I would also recommend for, for some people, if this doesn't trigger you to actually keep track of what you're eating for a week or two and you know, my, my fitness pal or whatever those online tracking things are just to see, because most of the time we don't really know what we're eating and we don't realize like how much of something that we're eating. And it might give you some insight as to what you're doing. So if something isn't feeling right, it's easier to make an adjustment. That's great. Moving on to, um, to mindset and another area that you've, you know, you've talked a lot about and interviewed a lot of experts on, why don't you talk a little bit about the backdrop to kind of what got you into that as like a focus area for you as both an athlete and as a, as a person and a coach to people through your community. Yeah. It's been pretty funny how this all came about because, you know, I don't have a psychology degree. (laughs) I did my school in engineering, but, um, it happened through just endurance racing in particular. And just, I started my own speaking series. There's, there's about five years where I was doing marketing for a company like nationally in the U S um, in the bike industry. And I was traveling around, um, for work and I decided I'm just going to start my own speaking series because I want to help people. And the speaking series was initially around mentoring people on mountain biking. So like what tire pressure do you run? Like, how do I train? You know, those types of questions. But as my racing changed into these longer races, and I I also am a freelance writer and I would write these articles about my race experience, but I thought it was boring to write about like the actual, like, then he said, she said, or he passed me and this happened. Right. Um, I wrote about the human experience of racing and I, for whatever reason, I'm not afraid to like, just share what happened and, and be vulnerable. So people started reading those. And then when they come to my speaking events, they wanted to know more about like, well, how, like, how did you not quit? Or how do you stay positive? Or, you know, how do you seem to just always be, you know, I guess the biggest question people kept asking me is how do you, how are you so positive all the time? And I didn't know the answer. I was like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, how am I positive all the time? So I started doing some reverse engineering of that. Like, well, okay. So I started pay, paying attention in races. Whenever I feel like I want to quit or I had something bad happen, get lost, have something break, you know, on your bike, or you have make a mistake, you know, and have a, a body meltdown. What am I doing in these situations? And it started with being really interested in positive psychology. And I'd say the gateway drug book was called the happiness advantage by Sean Acor. And I absolutely love that book. And, and he's a great guy. So I would say get, get that audiobook specifically. And then it just sort of, kind of snowballing from there because he would quote other researchers like Tal Ben-Shahar or Martin Seligman. So I said, oh, who are these people? And so I just spent a ton of time researching positive psychology, which has a cognitive behavioral um, element to that. So then I started searching that stuff. Like, how do I reframe things when things are going wrong? Like, what story am I telling myself and how do I change it? And how can I help other people do that? And then um, the mindfulness and meditation piece came in. And that came in through a yoga practice. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for eight years. And 
I was really lucky to have exposure to some amazing teachers. And I didn't know how lucky I was at the time, but they started helping me with um, not being such a perfectionist and um, just being mindful of my breath or my, how my body feels. And so I wanted to start doing more research about that. So I started coming into meditation and like, what does it mean to be mindful during your day? And um, how am I doing that on the bike? And then my podcast has been, I've been doing my podcast for about three years. It's been such a great um, learning tool for me and for my listeners, because I've been able to have the luxury to interview, you know, all of these experts who are not only in the psychology realm, but people who are in the mindfulness and meditation realm and people who are instructors and like neuroscience researchers and just learning how to like help people just do that in their own lives, how to be more aware, how to be aware of what your feelings are and realize that they're not permanent and that they don't have to stay that way, but you have to accept them. And how do you change things whenever they're not going well? So it's, I'm really passionate about it. And I've actually, some days I'm like, maybe I should go, you know, become like a mindfulness instructor or other days. I'm like, maybe I should go get my PhD in positive psychology or I just, I love that stuff because it really does like our thoughts create our reality, our perception create our reality. So we have so much control, you know, as long as you don't have like a clinical issue, like you have so much control over how you view the world and the way that you live your life. And that is probably the best gift you could give somebody. On that note. So both on the meditation and mindfulness side, and also like dealing with adversity or the bad thoughts that come in or the, you know, you've talked about imposter syndrome and comparison, all of the things that kind of society pushes us towards. Um, maybe walk us through what your routines or habits are on the mindfulness side that give you that grounding, but then also some of the, some of the skills you actually go to when you have those thoughts yourself that, um, send you in a direction where you don't want to be going. Okay. First of all, I'll preface this with just because you do all this personal work doesn't mean that you're immune to feeling, you know, bad about yourself when you're scrolling through Instagram and, or like, that you never have imposter syndrome. Like you'll still have all those feelings, but you'll just be better at dealing with them. So the first step is being aware that it's even happening. Like a lot of times we're really reactive and we don't understand like what's, what's actually going on because we're just doing things. So the meditation practice, which you can do even through like a yoga practice, it's like creating that space between the thought and the feeling and realizing that, that it's there, but it, it's not real. Like it, it doesn't have to be a reality. How did you get started on meditation? Were there, it was, so it was on the yoga side Were there like, was it like a daily practice or, um, similar to kind of the move into plant-based, like what, what steps did you learn and what could other people do that might be kind of exploring that? Yeah, for me, it was through yoga because, and, and I mean, we didn't meditate, quote meditate in yoga, but it was like learning how to connect breath to movement, learning how to take a cleansing breath, learning just to be aware of your breath. But it really wasn't until that Headspace app came out. Like that was a big deal for me because I never done a guided meditation before. So I started doing the Headspace app, but now, um, you know, if we're going to geek out about apps, I really love the 10% happier app. And after reading Dan Harris's books, 10% happier and meditation for fidgety skeptics, um, the reason why I like those apps is because our 10% happier is there's so many different meditation instructors. So if one person doesn't resonate with you, you can, I mean, it's all some, it's all the top meditation instructors in the world. And also you can sort by topic, like things that you're struggling with and, and it's like, it's like lessons for life while you're breathing. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that 
having apps and then having access to books people have written and just asking people and, and being curious. And it's also become a really common um, discussion in, in my community of like mountain bikers, like lots of people talk about how they, they meditate and it's not this like weird hippie thing. Yeah. It's funny that shift has happened quickly in a good way. And actually, do you meditate every day? I would say that I, I don't have a sitting practice that I do every day. I do a sitting practice multiple times a week, but I practice every day moments of mindfulness. Like I'll make sure that there are moments during my day where I, I stop everything I'm doing and I'll just like take 10 concentrated breaths or just practicing. So meditation, like a seated meditation practice helps you recognize the thoughts that you're having and like clouds in the sky. It helps you just be more aware of what's happening so that whenever you're in your daily life, you can have the mindfulness practice. So when you're actually doing things, you recognize the interrupting thoughts coming in so that you don't have to let them take you off on this wild ride. So for me all day, every day, as much as I can, I try and practice like recognizing, am I distracted right now? Recognizing how am I feeling right now? Like right now I just noticed, oh, I have a, like a little hair tie around my finger and there's two, there's like, it's wrapped around twice and I'm feeling it and I feel the texture. I feel like just little things like that. Or like if I have food in my mouth, like what does the food feel like? So just all day, just kind of like asking myself questions that bring me into the present moment, um, that, that make it real <laughs> because man, there's a lot of, uh, anxiety that we can have in our lives. And especially like those uh, people understand like the entrepreneur life, like there is a lot of uncertainty. Like you do not know what's going to happen. <laughs> you don't know, like in 10 years, what it's going to look like, or maybe even in six months, what it's going to look like. Um, in pregnancy, there's an amazing amount of uncertainty and lack of control. So just being able to recognize like, okay, like I feel anxious right now. And, and then a technique that I love is called thought labeling. So, in, and you practice this in a meditation practice so that you can start doing it in your daily life. But like you sit and you're sitting and then these thoughts start coming in and it's like, oh, like I should do this. It's like, okay, I'm planning right now. So you label planning uh, and then, oh, I, I have a niche discomfort. Uh, oh, I, I'm wondering about the curiosity, like just start labeling the thought before the thought starts taking off on its own. And I've used that a lot. Uh, when I like lay in bed at night, wondering things like, what about this? It's like, no judging or no, no, no planning. And that helps like diffuse the thoughts power and yeah, that technique. And then the recognizing and being curious about things that also takes away its power. Have you had areas where that presence or, you know, that awareness that you've got now, um, has changed your personal or life goals? Like, has it woken you up to anything where you're like, I was chasing something that I'm not anymore or, uh, I would say no. Like, I think people, a big concern people have is like, it's going to take away my edge. Like I'm not going to be as competitive or as driven because I'm not going to care as much. I'm going to be blissed out. And that's not the case. I think it just helps you be more focused and more, have more clarity and intention with the things that you do choose to spend your time on, because we have stuff coming at us from every single angle. And to use, um, this author, Brad Stolberg, his, his terminology, excitement junkie, like I'm a total excitement junkie. I love new things. I love new projects and I'm one person and there's only so much I can do. So just like being aware of, Oh, like I feel really excited about this idea, but it doesn't mean that I have to go do it. <laughs> and that's hard sometimes. Yeah. And on that note, on like the 
you know, another thing that I think about a lot raising two kids is just the notion of grit and follow through and determination. And, you know, where this is separate from like the meditation mindfulness side, but on building grit, right? Like, are you born with it? Is it something you can teach yourself? Is it, does it come through your life experiences? Like, where does it happen? Like there's. Yeah, I think it's teachable. There's a lot of different research out there that can be conflicting with grit. Right. But I I think it's a muscle. I think it's like a simple example is quitting. If the more you quit, the easier it gets to quit. And you've lost that trust and accountability with yourself, which brings us back to the consistency piece I was talking about. Mm -hmm. If you can build up trust with yourself and a work ethic with yourself, then it makes it way harder to quit. And you keep pushing because that's what you do. And if you've like find yourself quitting a lot, you have to start asking yourself, well, why am I quitting? And, and that's where the mindfulness comes in. Like, why am I quitting and being honest with yourself? Like <laughs> I had Matt Fitzgerald, who's a, a running, like a endurance author on my podcast. And he was talking about how he would like go hide in the woods in high school, <laughs> like during his races. Um, but like some people quit because they're like, they're afraid of what other people are going to think of their results. Or like my first few years as a pro racer, like I didn't quit, but I, I wasn't good. And I cried through my races because I was so worried that people were going to think I sucked. And I was so upset by that. So like, are you, are you quitting because you're worried about what other people think? And then you ask, well, why do I worry about what other people think? And then like getting to know yourself better to the point where you can't really ask why anymore. And your only choice is to keep going. And then to just keep doing that over and over and realizing that that moment when you want to quit is normal. Like everybody wants to quit. Even if you're at the top of your game, like if it's in business, if it's in, in sports, there are still days where you want to quit because it's hard. And it's in that moment that you choose not to quit and you keep moving forward. That's where grit and resilience start building and looking back and saying, oh, I'm so glad I didn't quit. And if you did quit, like, how did that feel to you? And it probably didn't feel very good. So if you're having that thought of, I need to quit then you think, well, how did it feel last time I quit? Well, I felt shame and I felt bad. And like the pain of quitting is worse than the pain of going on sometimes. And what about applying that to things like addiction and, you know, the consistency part that you just talked about is really interesting. What are the common threads on addiction for making it through that? It seems really connected to what you're talking about with grit in terms of making it one day at a time. Yeah. So I actually have an awesome book recommendation for this. Um, there's an amazing, I I really like really admire this guy. His name is Judd Brewer and he's an MD PhD. And he, he wrote this book called the craving mind. And he's been on tons of different like meditation podcasts as well. His book is specifically about addiction, addiction to technology, addiction to love, addiction to success. Um, and his work stemmed from actually clinical addiction, helping people quit smoking. And the thing that I thought was the most interesting is he starts the book talking about how he was hired or working to try to help people quit smoking. And they did a study where they took a a group of people over a period of time and the American Lung Association had a cognitive behavioral type um, therapy where they try and just help people reframe their thoughts around smoking where his, he took a mindfulness-based approach and he, his was getting curious. So his entire like message is get really curious about your addiction. So when people are trying to quit smoking, he, he told them, if you want a cigarette, have a cigarette, but ask yourself while you're having the cigarette, how does this feel? How do I feel? How did I feel after? 
And I don't remember like the exact um, result, but it was significantly more successful than the cognitive-based um, addiction training. So the curiosity piece is super like powerful. And he also has like apps for like anxiety and like food habit changes. So yeah. And, and it's using the mindfulness practice of like, how does it feel whenever I'm doing this or after I did this? Awesome. And on next one is you brought this up a little bit, but like imposter syndrome. Um, I'm curious, like what that means to you as a person, where you see it in sports in entrepreneurship and life and how you've seen people that seems like it's gotten, gotten worse, <laughs> not better. So. Yeah. I think the reason it's gotten worse is because the thing that we choose to show about our lives is very visible online. So we can make ourselves look a certain way. And then other people look to that and say, Oh, well, I'm not like that. Or so-and-so has it all together. Uh, I think with imposter syndrome is just, everybody's going to feel it period. Like, except that you're going to feel like an imposter and don't let that stop you from getting started. Like action is the best way to conquer imposter syndrome. A lot of times we think, well, I'm just not qualified and I have it. I have it in everything I do. I'm like, Oh, like I downplay my achievements or I feel like I'm not a real pro mountain biker because I haven't achieved X. <laughs> like it happens all the time, but action is, is how you solve it. Or, um, like there's a lot of times where people want to start something and like, I'll give some examples. Number one, like I wanted to become a keynote public speaker and I thought, well, I'm not really a speaker, but I'll just put a speaker tab on my website. So I put the speaker tab and lo and behold, people started hiring me as a speaker. And my first gig was like a really big tech conference. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I've never done this before, but I'm not going to tell them. And I hope I'm good at this. And, but you just, I just started like going through the process, like, okay, write the speech, practice the speech, get feedback from other people. Then other people started booking me and I became a speaker or like, you know, marketing. I was working my, um, engineering job and I got offered a marketing job, never taken a marketing class in my life. It was a pretty big role. <laughs> so it's like, well, uh, like trusting that you're going to figure it out and, and knowing that you like, you can learn, you can adapt and you can figure it out. And, and you're always going to think, well, like I'm not as good as so-and-so and, -so. and that, that that's where the comparison comes in but it doesn't matter what other people are doing. It matters what you're doing and that you're doing your best for what you can do and knowing that you're able to continue growing. And I think that that, like, if you remind yourself of that, it doesn't get rid of imposter syndrome, but it makes you realize, yeah, like I can do, I can do a lot of different things. And the more things that you do, the more you realize that you're capable of, like I can do, like, I didn't think I could figure that out or I didn't think I could finish that race. And then it builds your confidence. For you personally, kind of balancing what did I forget what you call it? The um, always excited excitement junkie. <laughs> Ex excitement junkie. Yeah. So, so you're an excitement junkie. You go after things. Um, and how do you stay focused? How do you know when you've gone after too much? And you know, not like when to quit, but when you're like, oh, I've decided to do ten things, and I really only should be doing three. Like, what's that? What's that look like for you as a person? That looks like my biggest weakness. <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, I don't have an answer, like a, a solution yeah. for that, but burnout is kind of the extreme end. And I have experienced extreme burnout in my life from trying to do too many things. The first thing again is the curiosity piece. Why ask yourself why, like, why am I doing all these things and going back to like what your values are and, and choosing like, okay, 
like, am I doing this because I want to prove myself? Am I doing this because I truly care about it? Am I doing this because like I could make a lot of money doing it and sticking to that has helped me stay on track and also realizing that like, I don't have to be in a hurry. Like there's so many things I want to do <laughs> still in my life and in my business. And I want to do them all right now, but knowing yeah. that if I do them all right now, it's not going to be good for me. And and sometimes I worry like, well, someone's going to swoop in and do it before me, or they're going to do it better than me. So I better do it now. But it's like, no, like they're going to do it. Sure. But they're going to do it their way. And it's not going to be the same as what your way is. So realizing that no matter how old you are, like you still have a runway in front of you. Like I'm 36. I still think I'm relatively young, but even people like in their fifties and sixties, like we have this idea that, well, we have to retire. Or we're retiring at like in, in your sixties, but you like with how long we're living, we have so much runway in front of us, even in our sixties left. And going back to my friend, uh, Brenda Davis, the one who wrote becoming vegan. Um, she had her 60th birthday party at our house last year. And the most, um, impactful thing that she said, and probably that I've ever heard is she said to me, I've always known that my senior years are going to be the best years where I make the most impact in my career. And most of us think, Oh, once I get to my sixties, like it's over. It's like, no, you have so much time. So that's what I remind myself of whenever I get excited about all these new projects I want to do. I say, no, no, like you can do them all. You just can't do them all right now. And you have lots of time to do them whenever it's the right time. And the second thing is there comes a time where you just can't do it all yourself. And I'm still learning this, but how to delegate, how to hire people. And it's hard whenever like you've worked super hard to like, quote, make it making an income, doing the thing that you love. And now you have to quote, give your money away to somebody and make less money. But time is not a renewable resource and your happiness is so important. And if you're trying to do everything and you become unhappy and you become burned out whenever someone else can be helping you, it's, it's completely worth um, the delegation. But the scaling piece of business is something I, I have a lot to learn about. That's probably my biggest challenge right now is like, how do I, how do I scale, but still like pay myself um, <laughs> and still like do all the things? Yeah, <laughs> that is a complicated one. What are you seeing in your peer group of friends? You know, there's the the 20s, the 30s, the midlife crisis, the, you know, both on the pro athlete side, but also just kind of your, your age group. Um, what are people dealing with right now? I think people are dealing with like they went to school for a certain thing and they've been doing it, or maybe they're an athlete and they're coming near the end of their career. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what's my purpose in life? Or like, I thought that I was doing something I like, but now I don't like it anymore. Now, what am I supposed to do? And I mean, I go through that too, because I do lots of different things and I think, well, is this, is this what I want to be doing? And the answer is yes. But what are like, where should I go next? And what should I do? And what's like, people talk about like, well, what's my purpose? And there's so much pressure to quote, find your purpose or to feel like you've achieved something. I, I think especially in the, in your thirties, and I'm sure like there's a lot of wisdom. I have a lot of wisdom to acquire as I get older, but, um, we want to feel like we've made it to a certain benchmark by a certain age. And a lot of times it doesn't happen the way that we imagined it would. Like people think, well, by the time I turn 30, I should have, you know, a wife and a house and, you know, all these things, or I should be this at this place in my career. But whenever you start like putting stuff off to the future, putting your happiness off to the future or hanging your hat on, oh, I'm going to be happy when I achieve X, you'll realize that 
it's actually a fallacy. Like you're not going to be happy when you achieve X, you have to be happy with the work that you're doing now. And you have to love the work that you're doing for the sake of the work itself, not for the shiny thing that you're chasing after, not for the accolade, because once you get that accolade, it's crazy. Like you're not going to feel satisfied no matter how successful you are. And like, I've learned this in my own life. I've learned this from, um, talking to like other high achievers on my podcast. I remember actually when I won the world championship for 24 hour racing, I actually felt empty. I thought, well, now what am I supposed to do? (laughs) So loving what you're doing because you love it, not because you're trying to get the achievement because the achievement is often empty and the bar is going to get moved even further. Um, this happens with like Instagram followers. There's another like really crude example, like, Oh, well, if I could just get like 20,000 followers, then I'll feel like I'm doing a good job on Instagram. Or if I could just get a million followers, well, the people that have a million followers wish they had 5 million followers. And so you're always going to be pushing for more and wanting more. So being able to love what you're doing now, because you love doing the thing, not because of, I want to achieve the thing I think is an important distinction. And it's really hard, um, to not get caught up in that. Being able to notice what you love, like that, it's, that's an interesting thing because it's never as easy as, as you would think, um, even noticing what you actually enjoy. Um, what have you learned about kind of applying that curious mindset to even being able to figure out what things it is that you're doing that are giving you the most, uh, fulfillment? I think the first thing is knowing that that can change and you're not locked into doing the same thing. Um, like for me, it was, it started with mountain biking and talking about like technical riding or gear and not pigeonholing myself into that. Whenever I got interested in nutrition or when I got interested into mindset and knowing that, yeah, like my audience might change or like the people interested in me might change or like my opportunities might change as I change my interests, but like ask yourself, what would I do? Like if I didn't have to worry about money or what do I enjoy doing the most? Like, what is it that I enjoy doing the most? And then, um, pick that thing and then be like, well, why do I enjoy it? And and that's <laughs> applying the curiosity, like, okay, mountain biking. Why do I enjoy mountain biking? Well, even that has changed over time. Like the reason I started racing and, and my drive for racing in the beginning was I wanted to prove myself to people. And I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's true. And then, and then that kind of went away. And of course I still seek approval, but like now it's like, well, it became, well, what can I, like, how hard can I push myself or like where, what country can I go to or, you know, and then it kind of has evolved into like, well, how can I use this as a vehicle to help people and to teach people and to teach myself? So like asking your why for the, like, why are you doing that? Or like nutrition, people might change their diet initially because well, I I just want to feel better. I want to have more energy. And like that might evolve over time. Like, well, why are you talking about it? Why are you continuing to want to learn about it? Well, I'm interested in science. Well, why am I like just those types of questions? It might be really annoying for some people, (laughs) but I I think that that actually is, is a really great way to kind of figure out what, what you're interested in and how those interests can evolve over time. Another one that I think falls on that could be annoying for a lot of people is to some people being vulnerable happens fairly naturally, you know, they're kind of wear their emotions on their sleeve and you know what they're thinking and they're not afraid to kind of let you know the highs and the lows. Um, for other people that the thought of, of communicating those things is, you know, terrorizing. (laughs) It's like getting up and giving a speech. Um, 
you know, what have you learned on that, both as a person and through the people you've interviewed um, and the, you know, the things you've, you've researched on both the benefits of being vulnerable and, and the steps you can take to let yourself open up if it's not something that comes naturally to you? I think that, so Brene Brown has done a lot of work on um, bravery being linked to vulnerability. And being vulnerable is, is scary because we are social creatures and we want people to like us. We want to feel accepted. And sometimes whenever you say something <laughs> or you're putting yourself out there, you might not get the response that you wanted. And that can be really hard, but sometimes you do. So for me, being vulnerable is, it's not always easy, but I think that being able to put out there, this is how I feel like the most vulnerable thing I ever did was I did this 10 day mountain bike race across the Himalaya called the yak attack. Um, and I did a Ted talk on it, which makes me even nervous just saying this. And I'll tell you why in a minute is in the race, something went really wrong. And I just remember someone telling me, and this was like 2012 or something. Someone was like, document your experience. So I was like crying. And I don't think my parents have seen me cry as an adult. Like I don't cry in front of people, but I pulled my camera out and I took a video of it <laughs> and it was crazy. Like, I still don't know how I, and I had the wherewithal in the moment to do that, but I did. And then when I came home, I was telling the story of the race and I thought, well, this is a really important part of the race and this is like what it looks like. So should I post this online? Like, should I, what, what happens if I post this online? And I remember being terrified, but I decided that it's powerful to post this online because I really want other people to know that they're not alone. And knowing that if you're being vulnerable with how hard something is, or even how great something is, you're going to help a lot of people not feel alone. And isolation is one of the worst feelings. So mm. for me, the vulnerability, it's, it's, it's easier to do now because I know that it's going to help people. And that crying video is in that Ted talk. So even when I tell right, people I've about the it. Ted talk, yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm telling people to go watch this. Like, cause I still like, I do not like crying in front of people, period. Like it's really embarrassing for me that that's out there, but it was one of the most powerful things that I could have put online. And that has really helped me. As I mentioned, just like people realize like I'm not alone and be, my pregnancy was another really hard thing. And talking about being a pregnant athlete that was something I didn't want to share. And I, I didn't even tell the, the world I was pregnant until like, it was like 18 or 19 weeks pregnant. Cause I was so afraid and I'm still afraid, but the, the impact it's had of other people saying, wow, like, I'm so glad that you said that. Cause I feel that way too. And I, I didn't know anybody else felt that way. Like that is, that is like an incredible thing to be able to do. Yeah. Talk about that. Just talk about the experience of, of going through pregnancy as an athlete as a person too, but, um, kind of the, what the ups and downs have been, where you've turned for information, you know, what the, that loneliness part, feeling like you're out of control, but also alone in what you're dealing with, like, how have you addressed it? Well, initially I did address it very well. I was, um, quote my, this is like, my husband would probably be embarrassed, but it's like a joke now. <laughs> I remember him telling me you can't hide in your house forever because <laughs> yeah. I was hiding. Um, well, initially it was hard because last year I got pregnant or 2018, I got pregnant at the end of the year and I had a miscarriage after six weeks and I kind of just like brushed it aside and was like, okay, pick myself up back up. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to get back to training. I'm going to get back to all the things and I'm just going to put it behind me. And then I'll just, you know, and then when I want to try to get pregnant again, I'll try to get pregnant again. 
So I didn't really deal with it. And then I got pregnant again. And did um, you talk about that then? No, I didn't tell, I didn't even yeah. tell anybody. Nobody knew I was, pre- I had gotten, no one, pre- I was yeah. afraid to tell anybody that I was even thinking about getting pregnant because mm. as an athlete, like, you know, what am I going to lose all my sponsors? Am I going to be, are people not going to want to have anything to do with me because of that? Um, and that was a, another fear. So first trimester, it's like, okay, am I going to have a miscarriage again? And what does that mean if I have one again? And you know, you can start, I'm an analytical type and I, to, to a fault. And I, I read way too much information online. <laughs> so I like had myself so worked up and trying to, t- trying to practice all the things of like, no, this isn't real. Or like thought like, you know, it, it wasn't working. <laughs> and then there's the fear of, okay, well, what if I tell people I'm pregnant and then I, I do have a miscarriage and now I have this like scarlet P on my, on my sweater. And now nobody's going to want to work with me as an athlete. And then you feel like exhausted all the time. And you can't train properly or like people are inviting you to come to events and you can't go. Or like I did this uh, great bike festival called inspired to ride where I was like speaking in a group ride and I was so slow and I felt so terrible on my bike and I was terrified someone would notice and know why. Um, so, you know, trying to hide it. And this, this isn't just in athletics, this happens in entrepreneurship. And if you're trying to get investors for your company and you're a female and you're pregnant because people have a bias against you and so when I finally put it out there, I was like, oh my gosh, like, am I going to lose all my sponsors? Like, are people going to think that because I'm pregnant, I'm not going to come back or I'm just going to give up or, um, are people going to start judging me because of the, cause I'm still mountain biking. And guess what? All those fears came true. <laughs> all of them. I've lost about 50% of the funding from my sponsors, which I haven't really talked about yet. And that's been incredibly difficult and a really hard thing to, to swallow. And I mean, nobody's pointed at me and said, it's because you're pregnant. So I don't want to play victim and say, oh, it's because, you know, it's hundred percent because of this, but I've been at this for a long time. Um, I've been managing myself as an athlete for six years and I've never like, I've had a very successful last couple of years. So I, I really do think that it actually is because of being pregnant and, um, trying to renew contracts and brands are like, well, we don't know if she's going to come back or not. Or like, what if she comes, what if she can't do as much? And I feel offended by that because I work super hard and a contract is a contract. If I've committed to it, I've committed to it. And if I don't, then you don't have to pay me. <laughs> so yeah, that that's been super hard. People have been critical, like about like, Oh, you shouldn't be mountain biking. It's too dangerous. Or like, I wouldn't ride that. You shouldn't ride that. And, and like trying to like not get too frustrated by that, but it's, it's part of the journey and yeah, eventually it's going to be a good thing. Like, eventually it's, it's still really hard right now, but I know that I'm going to be stronger because of it. I'm going to be able to, to be a voice. It's already, I've already been able to be a voice for people that feel like they don't have one in this area. And like, what am I allowed to do as an athlete? What's acceptable. <laughs> so it, it's, mm. yeah, it's this gray area and, um, it's just, and but- when you're navigating that, I mean, the, this is, I, there's obviously been like lots of stories on the running side. Um, and, people are talking about it more openly and companies are being held accountable in a way that clearly hasn't happened in the past and that needs to happen. But are there many places for you to turn to navigate this? No. Um, I mean, I find comfort in the fact that in the running community, it's become front and center. Nobody has like violated anything. So I can't like point a finger and say, you did, you did this. It's just um, speculation. And again, someone could be listening to this and tell, be like, oh, she's full of crap. And 
you know, she's just playing the victim. Like, but I really don't think that I am like, I'm somebody that takes responsibility for my actions. And I, I've said to my husband countless times, like, well, maybe I just am not working hard enough, or maybe like what I'm doing is just not valuable enough anymore. Or, you know, maybe the type of racing I'm doing isn't valuable anymore. Like I've asked all those questions, but another thing that I tell myself is like, this isn't a permanent thing. Like I'm going to have a baby in a few weeks and then I'm not going to be pregnant anymore. And I'm going to have, and then I'm going to navigate the, how do I race with a newborn? How do I sign up for different races this year? Um, how do I manage my time? And, and instead of looking at that as like, oh, this is going to be so hard. It's like, this is a great opportunity. This is a great opportunity for me to learn. This is a great opportunity for me to be connected to people or in my community in a different way than I have before. That's where that like reframing the positive psychology comes in is I could choose to look at this as this like, oh, poor me and like life sucks. And there are days I feel like that. Or I could say, okay, like this is a challenge, but I can take on challenges. I can figure this out. Like this is going to be hard and it's not going to feel good, but I'm going to like, it's going to be good in the end. It's, and I'm going to be able to help people too. So it's just a, a daily practice of going through that. Yeah. I'm sure just sharing your story, um, and your learnings on navigating it alone is, is super helpful. You know, this is more of a meta question, but I, I'm always curious with athletes, um, with sponsorships, like how much of your value that you provide to your sponsors, do you think comes through your races and race results versus all of the other stuff you're doing? I like honestly you think about that. I think it depends on the athlete and the athlete's value proposition. Like if you're in yeah. a, like, I'm not trying to go to the Olympics. I don't do world cup races. Like that's not, I, I do ultra endurance races. Um, and I also think it depends on how you pitch yourself. So from the beginning, like when I left my marketing job and the team I was on, and I started writing my own proposals, my value proposition was on creating community and content and having the credibility from my race results so that I could make an impact and looking at me as like, I'm, a, I'm an arm of your marketing team and we need to work together in that way so that people can feel like I'm bringing them value and, and feel like connected to me and, and you build trust with people. And I also think that like not being on a team helps because I get to choose like what brands I want to work with. And so there, there's, um, some authenticity there of like, I'm not going to just use something because someone gave me money. I'm going to use something because I truly believe in it. So my value proposition has always been, um, community and content first with the backbone of racing and the bike as a credibility vehicle. So that's why I was a little bit surprised with some of the, the results that have happened. And to be fair, I would say that maybe one or two of the sponsorships wasn't because I was pregnant. It's because people, you know, it's normal in business to have ebbs and flows and things like that. Um, that's why I asked myself, am I not bringing enough value? But I have like the race results and I have the content and I have like the media, all those things. So I just, I'm just going to keep my head down and keep working. And my, my why, like going back to, we, we ask why my, why is not to like, be sponsored and make money. Like that's not my why. My why is to help people and use the bike as a vehicle to tell stories, to help them be healthier and feel more empowered in their lives. Like that's my why the sponsorships help support that for sure. But am I worthless if I'm making less money as an athlete? No, <laughs> like I'm not worthless, yeah. but it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard though. Whenever you feel like people don't believe in you. I'm, I'm going back to the running side, just cause I feel like that's where this conversation has happened more over the last few years and this year, especially, you know, you see brands 
like Wazell on the the you know women founded um, and really advocating and bringing a lot of these stories to the front um, in the cycling world. Are you seeing certain brands embrace it more than others? Uh, I'm going to say no, <laughs> I'm not yeah. seeing that. Um, cause I, I've tried to say, Hey, like we can include this as part of the story. I, I will say I have had some amazing sponsors who are very supportive and standing by me, but they still don't really want to create content around it. And I think that that's a big mistake. I think that this is a really powerful story to show that. Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm an athlete. I'm going to be a mom and I can be all those things at the same time. Well, and cycling needs more women um, and diversity. So, yeah, that seems like a pretty natural evolution for the sport to embrace. Yeah, like most, I, I noticed that lately it's not happening as much, but it seems like a lot in the past of professional female cyclists retire when they get pregnant, or maybe they um, they save pregnancy for retirement. But like, I'm not ready to retire. So, but I, but I, it's kind of time for me to have a kid. Like, I'm ready to have a kid. So, you know, I don't want to give one up. I don't want to wait like, and, and then say, well, why did I wait so long? And yeah. So like, I think showing people that it might be hard road, but it's not the end of the road. <laughs> like there's a couple other people right now who are pregnant cyclists. And I, I it's been really nice to, to see them, see what they're doing, get to talk to them, but also not compare myself to them too, because everybody feels different as when they're an athlete, like some people can ride harder than others. And some people like feel like they can still race while they're pregnant. And I certainly didn't feel that way. Um, cause I just, I just didn't feel good in my body. And so like just showing people that, yeah, you can do stuff, but do it within yourself and whatever you decide for you is okay too. Well, yeah, it all comes back to, yeah, the vulnerability to tell your story. So, I mean, you've just on our site on pro kit, um, you know, you've shared your journey and, um, Laura King, on the cycling side wrote her post on pregnancy and the athlete, which I thought was just, you know, super interesting. Um, I'm obviously cannot get pregnant, but my wife did <laughs> and she was a big athlete and navigating that, um, that journey is, is, you know, something that, that us men don't have to have to face. Um, but we hopefully can be supportive in it. Yeah. I think like um, having access to the information that's out there, and then making decisions based on what's best for you instead of not having access or not knowing what's true and then just like speculating and then being worried about it and also seeing there's multiple ways to do it. Yeah. So I'm, you know, coming out of the pregnancy piece and moving into your, you know, your future. And you've talked about the mindset around kind of can always just be getting started and learning. So where do you see things going over the next five to 10 years for you? Or are you thinking one day at a time? Uh, I'm not thinking five to 10 years out, but I'm, I'm thinking a, a couple of years out. Like the thing that gets like, I love, I love mountain biking and I love racing and I'm still continuing to do those things. But the, the things like we talked about, what gets you most excited? Like I love plant-based nutrition and helping people. I did a, a certificate through Cornell, uh, at the end of last year in that. Um, and also just like the mindset and mindfulness piece and figuring out like how to, how to converge those things or how to even on their own, make that stuff more accessible to people so that it, they, how do I turn this into something where people can like just go on their computer and have access to all the stuff that, that I've learned in a really easy way to digest, whether it be courses, whether it be a book, whether, um, 
you know, I've, I've actually started my book multiple times and stopped. So I feel like this is not, my book is not ready to come out yet and that's okay. And that that's taken some time to accept that. <laughs> but I, yeah, for me, it's like helping people get access to that information in an easier way. That's not like, Oh, I have to go search through all these podcasts and I have to listen to hours of podcasts or I have to go find all, all these articles. Like how do I create ways to make it easier for people to access this information and do it in a way that's authentic to me. Yeah. On your podcast, any like absolute, like all time favorites that people should listen to that meant a lot to you? Oh, that's, that's, I I think we were talking before we hit record, like I've recorded over 180 episodes, so it's (laughs) hard to pick. Yeah, It's hard to pick. Um, one of the most popular ones recently in the last like six months has been one on gut health with Dr. B, uh, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. <laughs> His last name is a tricky one. That that's been a really popular episode. I really, it hasn't come out yet. Maybe by when this podcast comes out, it'll be out by then, but I love the podcast I did with Judd Brewer, the guy that wrote the craving mind. Um, yeah. I love them all. I did one with Corey Muscara who wrote, uh, a great book and is this really accomplished meditation instructor and has his master's in positive psychology. Basically, I love them all. <laughs> They're like my babies. I love them all. All right. Um, let's see. Last, last question. People coming up like you who, um, you know, now with like Nika and the leagues and mountain biking, um, you know, you're seeing the people like Kate Courtney come out of those programs, um, navigating kind of being a, pro athlete and your career outside of it, any lessons for the aspiring athletes out there or entrepreneurs? I would say work hard, (laughs) like, and don't be afraid to share that you're working hard. Like something that I absolutely love about Kate Courtney is she works her butt off and she is not afraid to show it. And, And like the growth and fixed mindset, you know, age, like I'm sure everybody has at least heard of it now. But like people, when people are like, oh, like I didn't work very hard and I achieved all these amazing things. Like that's not actually that inspiring. Like share your hard work because that inspires people. Um, And be nice to people. Like just be nice and and try and be as empathetic as possible. Um, And be professional. Like don't throw your bike. (laughs) Don't, Don't say bad things. Like if you can just be professional, be empathetic and don't be afraid to work hard. I think that you can work or you can get really far just in life. Words of wisdom. And when is your due date? It's on March 7th, but I'm hoping it comes earlier or he comes earlier. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe by the time this show comes out, you will be uh, (laughs) riding with a a baby in tow. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for joining the Common Threads. And um, where can people find you? SonyaLooney.com is probably the best place, but I'm on all the social medias. Um, uh, you, my podcast is the Sonia Looney Show, anywhere you like podcasts, but everything can be found at SonyaLooney.com. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. 
and then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.